Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Dr. Mark Hoffman, who is a research associate professor in the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He is also chief research information officer in the Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. His research interests include health data de-identification, sharing, and visualization. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So I want to start with one of your papers, uh, heterogeneity introduced by EHR system implementation in a de-identified data resource from 100 non-affiliated organizations. Um, So in which you say electric health record EHR data aggregated from multiple non-affiliated sources provide an important resource for biomedical research, including digital phenotyping. Unlike work uh, with EHR data from a single organization, aggregate EHR data introduces a number of analysis challenges. So, uh, so we work with some um, organizations, Mark, and in almost all the cases, we use EHR data coming from that single organization, whether it's in primary care, behavioral health, or specialty hospitals. And I always wondered, you know, wouldn't it be nice <laughs> to get a data set uh, that sort of aggregates um, uh, data from a variety of um, organizations, uh, but there are a lot of different challenges around that, right? So you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. The resource that we've worked with um, is primarily uh, called the Health Facts Data Resource. It's been in operation for almost 20 years, and the uh, the the model is that organizations who are using the Cerner electronic health record enter into an agreement with Cerner. They agree to provide data rights to Cerner. Cerner de-identifies the data before it's aggregated into this resource. And Cerner provides data mapping, which is really critical to this type of work. It also, um, then they aggregate the data. And for the past probably six years, 
then they provide the full data set to especially academic contributors who want to do research with that resource. Um, right. And I've been on both sides of that equation. I um, led that group during my career there, and then now I have the opportunity to really focus research on that um, type of data. So before we uh, get into the details, Mark, so EHR system, so this is uh, essentially patient records. So it has data like demographics, uh, family history, surgical history, perhaps, uh, medications, uh, lab results. It could have physician notes, nurse notes. So it's it's uh, a combination of a variety of different types of data, right? Yeah. A couple of things on the, the examples you gave. It includes demographics, discrete laboratory results, um, medication orders, um, many vitals. So we have access to blood pressure and pulse data. Yeah. It does not include um, text notes because those can't be uh, automatically de-identified consistently. So. Um, okay. We don't have access currently to text notes um, right. out of an abundance of caution. Right, yeah, so the issue there is obviously when a physician writes something down, they could use names, they could use information that could then point back to the, to the patient. So from a HIPAA perspective, uh, the, when the data is aggregated, the, the primary issue there is to assure that the data is completely de-identified, right? Correct. So, so yeah, go ahead. So the data that we receive, there's 18 identifiers that HIPAA requires be removed from data. Um, and those include obvious things like name and address, email addresses are another example. Um, one of the things that is also part of the benefit of working with this particular resource, the dates of clinical service are not allowed to be provided under HIPAA. What is done with this resource that allows us to still have a longitudinal view is for any given patient in the data set, the dates are shifted by a consistent pattern that for any given patient, it can be one, two, three, four, five weeks forward or one, two, three, four, five weeks backward but that preserves things like day of the week effect. Um, so for example, you see a significant increase in emergency department encounters over weekends and you don't wanna lose visibility to that. Um, but it also allows us to receive very granularly time-stamped events. And so we can gain visibility into the time that a blood specimen was collected and then the time that the result was reported back. And so we're able to do very detailed analyses with this type of resource. Right, right. And I don't know, uh, the EMR EHR market uh, is very fragmented. I think that thousands of EMR EHR providers out there uh, and so, so there are two issues. One is sort of uh, there is no standardization as to how these databases are designed and structured. Uh, and the other is even with that standardization, that the actual collection of the data uh, in itself is not highly standardized, right? So we have 
we have potentially a lot of variability coming from different systems. Correct. And that's part of what the paper that you mentioned um, evaluates. So uh, often I, you, out in the field and in conferences, you hear comparisons kind of lumping all organizations using one EHR vendor, lumping all using another together. Um, but as you get closer to it, you quickly learn that it's not even that clear. It's within those uh, vendor markets, there's variation from organization to organization and how they use the EHR. And so because the identities of the contributing organizations are blinded to those of us who work with the data, we have to be creative about how we infer those implementation details. And so with this paper, we describe a couple of methods that um, we think move things forward towards that goal. Yeah, so I'm not really familiar with that. So you mentioned a couple of things here. One is the the eMERGE network. So this is an initiative, you say, including the electronic medical records and genomics network and PCOR.net the National Patient-Centered Clinical Research Network support decentralized analyses across disparate systems by distributing standardized queries to, to, uh, to member sites. So this is a situation where you have multiple systems sort of uh, communicating with each other, and these networks are allowing to, um, to sort of query them um, in some standardized fashion. Yeah, so in this type of technology, there's kind of two core models. One is the um, federated or distributed model. The other is um, a centralized data aggregation. So there are examples, including those that are mentioned in the paper, where queries are pushed to the organization and they need to do significant work up front to ensure that they're standardizing their terminologies the same way. Um, and once they do that upfront work, then they're able to perform the types of queries that are distributed through those federated networks. Um, with okay, so the, just one quick one, uh, Mark. So that the queries are standardized. So on the EHR side, then they have to write some sort of a translator from from the standardized query to how their data is structured. Yeah, and in many cases, they work through an intermediate technology. Um, that would be, uh, in general, you could consider it like a data warehouse. And so the queries aren't running against the production electronic health record. That has all kinds of implications on patient care where you don't want to slow down performance. But right. by using these intermediaries, um, they can receive the queries. And then um, if all of that mapping has occurred, then they're able to to run those distributed queries. Okay, and the other model is, um, you know, sort of this. Uh, you said um, GE through their Medical Quality Improvement Consortium, and Cerner through their Health Facts Initiative. So this is in in Cerner's case, for example, in Health Facts, uh, this is essentially picking up data from variety of clients and then standardizing and centralizing that in a singular database is that that idea? is correct one okay. 
one benefit of okay. that model is that um, organizations who, for example, may not be academic and don't have the resources to do that um, data mapping themselves um, by by handing that over that that task over to the vendor, um, you get a broader diversity of the types of organizations. So you can have uh, safety net hospitals, you can have critical access rural hospitals and other venues of care that are probably underrepresented in some of those um, more academically driven um, models. Right, right. And and clearly the, the focus here is on healthcare, but I would imagine it has applications in pharmaceutical R&D too, right? I don't know if it is used in that direction. There, there has been some work performed with these data resources to characterize different aspects of um, medications. And so, yeah, it does have utility and value uh, in a variety of um, analytical contexts. Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, there are a lot of randomized clinical trials going on in the COVID context. And uh, one of the issues uh, with this vaccine development trials that are going on is that one could argue the population uh, there are not really well represented. Um, you know, uh, it maybe doesn't have sufficient number of minorities, women, people with uh, pre-existing conditions. And so any results that might come out of a phase three trial um, granted, it might work for the population tried. Uh, it may not have sufficient power mm -hmm. uh, more, more largely. So I wonder this type of, well, I guess we don't really have an ID there, right? So clearly we don't know who these people are, uh, but there could be some clustering type analysis that might be interesting, Absolutely. right? From a pharma perspective. Yeah, it, yeah, it's very useful for health services research and for outcomes research. Um, uh, for you know what I characterize as digital phenotyping, um, that can then guide more more formal research. Um, you know you can use this type of resource to make sure you're asking a useful question and make sure that there's likely to be enough patients who qualify for a given study. Maybe you're working on a clinical trial and you're casting your net too narrow, you can determine that with this type of data resource. Yeah, and is the HF data, who has access to it typically? So for this data resource, um, it's through the, the vendor. So um, you need to have some level of footprint with them, uh, which is the case with our organization. They're definitely broadening their strategy. So they're um, gaining access into health systems that aren't exclusively using their electronic health records. So um, it's exciting to be a part of that, that process uh, and to, again, work with them to analyze the data. I think, you know, to the example you gave of formal randomized trials, you know, key part of what we're growing our research to focus on is because this is real world data, you learn what's happening in practice, whether or not it's um, well aligned with guidelines or formal protocols. 
And through yeah. doing that, there's really many opportunities for near-term interventions that can improve health outcomes simply by identifying where providers may be deviating more from best practices and then taking steps through training and education to kind of get them back towards those best practices. Yeah, and this data is refreshed on a daily basis? Um, it's not. It's um, because it's oh. so large and bulky. Um, typically, we've received it on a quarterly basis. And since it's retrospective analysis, that's not been a major barrier. Right, right. But mechanistically on, uh, on the Cerner side, is the data getting sort of picked up from their system? Yeah, the yeah it's harvested every day and then it's aggregated, bundled and distributed on a, on a different time scale. Okay, okay. Um, so you say here, um, you know, from again, going to the EHR system design issue and implementation, uh, you say many EHR systems are comprised of modules that support specific clinical processes or units such as pharmacy, laboratory, or surgery. We talked about that. But then when people implement them, they sort of go in a sequential fashion, right? <laughs> they, they implement module by module. Um, that can be a factor, or sometimes they may want one vendor for their primary electronic health record, but another vendor for their laboratory system. Um, right. And so that's where you don't see 100% usage of every module and every organization. Yeah, and you detail number of different, you know, sort of noise creating issues in the data. Uh, one is this ICD switch over from ICD-9 to ICD-10. Um, and I don't know the history of this, but this was supposed to be switched over sometime in 2015 or that's something. That's correct. So there was a, you know, there was a date in October of 2015 where most organizations were expected to have completed that transition. Um, one, I see with researchers who aren't as familiar with the, uh, you know, the whole policy landscape around electronic health records that. Um, you can imagine researchers who assume that all data before that date in October is ICD-9 and all data after that date would be ICD-10. What we demonstrate in this paper is that that transition was not nearly that clean and it was a much more, you know, there are some organizations who just bit the bullet and completed it in 2014 and there were other organizations that were still lagging into 2016, potentially because they weren't as exposed to those um, uh, incentives and, and other things that you know stipulated the transition. So part of what we're demonstrating with that particular part of that work was that um, you know these transitions aren't always um, abrupt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. And uh, and so that is one issue. Um, and then, you know, it's a lot of consistency, inconsistency issues, right? So we see that in, in single EHR systems. And, uh, you know, one of the items you note here is, um, you know, if you think about the disposition code for death, uh, you could have a right, your waste that is represented, right? So death expired, expired at home, hospice, and so on. 
um, if this is a problem for a single system, but then when you think about aggregating data from multiple sources, uh, this this problem sort of increases exponentially. Absolutely. So one of the challenges with documenting and and finding where um, you know if a patient has um, uh, deceased that there's just multiple places to put that documentation in the clinical record. The um, location in the record that we have found to be the most consistent is this what's called discharge disposition. But as we show in that analysis, that field is not always used to document that. And so if you're doing outcomes research and one of your key outcome metrics is death and there are organizations that aren't documenting death in a place that's accessible, you should filter those out of your analysis before moving forward. And so part of what we wanted to promote is the realization that that's the type of consideration that needs to be made um, before publishing your data about an outcome metric like death is that you're not, if you're never going to see that outcome, it doesn't mean that people aren't, you know, dying in that particular facility. It just means it's not documented in the place that's accessible. Right, right. Yeah. So, um, you know, given your experience, you're in a kind of a unique position, Mark, because you 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 looked at it from the from the vendor's perspective. You're in an academic setting. You're also uh, in practice in a hospital. Um, what is your sense? Are are these things improving? We are on a track of getting getting this more standardized, or is it heading in the other direction? I think in general there is improvement. I think um, the you know, over the past 11 years through various federal mandates, including meaningful use and so forth, those have all incented organizations to utilize standard terminologies um, more consistently than was the case beforehand. I think there's still plenty of room for improvement. And, um, you know, it's, it's a journey, not a destination, but I think things have improved substantially. Yeah, I was wondering, there could be some applications of artificial intelligence here too. Um, you know, clearly if you, if you take two systems and you try to merge them, uh, it is very human resource intensive if you want mm -hmm. to get it completely right. Uh, so one question would be, you know, could we actually use AI techniques to, to get it maybe 99% right and then let the human uh, deal with exceptions? Or yeah, no, I definitely lines. think that that's uh, an exciting direction that, um, you want those AI algorithms to be trained with good data. And that's a big part of what's motivated us to put this focus on data quality and um, understanding these strange nuances that are underpinning the data so that as we move towards AI and machine learning and so forth, we have a high level of confidence in the data that's training those algorithms. Right. Yeah. I think there's a huge opportunity here because it's not quite as broad as NLP, natural language processing. It is somewhat mm -hmm. constrained. Uh, that That is a good part of it. The bad part of it is that mm -hmm. it's highly technical. Um, and so <laughs> uh, 
you know, some of the NLP techniques, uh, you know, you can have um, a fault tolerance uh, in certain dimensions, such as, you know, uh, misspellings, um, lack of grammar and things like that. Whereas when you have highly technical data, you cannot apply those principles because if you have a misspelling, the system may not be able to able really? to guess yeah. sometimes. And that's where, you know, I think it's totally feasible to use AI resources to, you know, when you're dealing with tens of millions of patients and billions of detailed records, using AI to even identify those patterns of either inconsistent data or missing data. It's also very powerful just to um, kind of flag and, and identify areas that need to be focused on to lead to a better analysis. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, we, we have to use that information somehow. Um, there, there is a wealth of information there, as you know. And so if we're just not filtering into decision processes, um, then we are, we are really losing it. So hopefully we are improving in that dimension. I want to jump into another paper, um, which is really interesting. So uh, it's entitled Rates and Predictors of Using Opioids in the Emergency Department to Treat Migraine in uh, Young Adults. Um, and so, so this is you know, sort of a machine learning exercise uh, you have gone through. Uh, to look at, you know, who is getting prescribed um, opioids, uh, what are the conditions, what are the, demo not necessarily demographics, but uh, uh, different, uh, different uh, maybe age and things like that, gender. Um, and, and then ask the question, uh, does it have some effect on addiction um, in the long term, right? So you want to talk yeah, about that? Yeah, so that project... Um... It's a great example of team science. So we assembled a team of subject matter experts in neurology, pain management, and data science. And the neurologists and pain management experts identified an intriguing question that we decided to pursue with this data. And their question was, based on anecdotal observation. And so we thought it'd be interesting to see how well the data supported that. And their, their observation is that uh, for youth and young adults um, treated or admitted into the emergency department um, with a migraine headache that all too often they were treated with an opioid. And so we, um, use the same data resource that we were discussing earlier to explore that question. And using data from 180 distinct emergency departments, we found that on average, 23% of those youth and young adults were treated with an opioid medication while they were in the emergency department. In general, it should be almost 0%. In general, there's really better medications to use um, for people presenting with a migraine. And so this fits into obviously the opioid crisis. It, um, it demonstrates the scenario that I was describing that, you know, using real world data, you can identify patterns of clinical behavior that 
don't match a guideline. And the good news is that this is, you know, correctable. And so through training and communication, there's great opportunity to, to manage this. Yeah. Yeah, it's really striking. So um, 15,000 or so eligible ED encounters and nearly a quarter of those encounters, you say, involved in opioid. Um, and th these are not just migraine encounters, right? It, it is no, we filtered down to migraine encounters. Okay, okay. So these are 15,000 just migraine encounters, migraine being sort of a repeating disease. Um, so once you, uh, let me make a statement and uh, let me know if this is right or not. Um, is there a conditioning issue here? So you get your migraine, you go to an emergency department and you get treated with an opioid, you get a you know, quick tactical relief uh, from pain. Um, are you getting conditioned to expect that in the next episode? So you get- I would say we didn't pursue that particular question, but that is um, definitely a key part of uh, managing the opioid crisis is that drug seeking behavior. And so part of our goal was to quantify that and to use this as an opportunity to educate providers that you really shouldn't be treating migraines with an opioid and there are better alternatives um, and so we, we felt that this was an important contribution to that national dialogue, but we didn't specifically pursue the question of whether the patients that we analyzed within an encounter show up, um, uh, subsequently, um, with the same symptoms. Right, right. Yeah, you say here's a developmental period where problematic patterns of drug use commonly first emerge. The prevalence rate of opioid misuse is estimated to be two to four percent, and deaths in this age group, which is young adult group, from overdose are rising. Um, and uh, uh, you say that legitimately prescribed opioids has been found to increase risk of future opioid misuse mm -hmm. by thirty-three percent. Which is which is right. a really huge number. Yeah. No, I, I think that just validates the uh, importance of this of this work. Yeah, it would be very interesting, Mark. I don't know uh, you explored this or if you have data uh, to ask the question. If you look at the aggregate data and we find opioid mis uh, misuse, uh, what percentage of that total number? actually, you know, started from, you know, some sort of a medical encounter, whether it's migraine or some sort of pain-related uh, encounter that could be treated uh, otherwise, was treated with opioid uh, in that encounter and ultimately resulted in that misuse. So what, uh, so, you know, if you look at the aggregate misuse problem that we have today, um, do you have a sense of what percentage of that cohort has actually started? Off I, like I think this? the exciting thing about this type of research is that for every one question that you pursue, you have you have ten new questions <laughs> that you can pursue. Um, we haven't um, right, right. delved into that specific area, but it's um, it's very ripe for further analysis. And you know, considerable part of where I and my colleagues spend our time is 
and we do this type of work to get um, an initial analysis published. And then, you know, in my leadership role, I just want to um, support people like my colleagues on this paper, Mark Connolly, Jennifer Bickle, um, in, in using data to um, support their research and to identify those follow-up questions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has policy implications, right? It's, it's really important work. And if you find a direct relationship here, then you have to ask, you know, from a, from a medical perspective, what is the right intervention? Uh, maybe it is not just standard of care, not just best practice, uh, but really should be the way, uh, you know, uh, things should be looked at. You say here, American Academy of Neurology has uh, included avoidance of using opioids to treat migraine as one of its top five choosing wisely recommendations right. for high value evidence. Exactly. And this gives um, really evidence to, to support that. The other thing that's really intriguing is there's the level of variation from site to site in the, you know, some, some facilities are very much aligned with the guidelines. Others are at the, you know, well above 23%. And that gives an opportunity for a really precision um, conversations about, um, you know, where does our organization stand on that spectrum? Mm. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting avenue too, right? So you know, one could ask: Is there some sort of personalized um, intervention? Um, if we can find cohort of patients who who have gone on opioids actually don't have an addiction problem, um, whereas you know another cohort does. Uh, if you can find those type of patterns, then you can think about potentially customized. And within electronic health record systems, there's the ability to provide um, decision support. There's certainly a phenomenon that's called pop-up fatigue where uh, physicians, you know, they don't like having so many pop-up windows, but at the same time, it's completely within the cap capability of an EHR to do the if-then logic. If patient has migraine and medication order equals opioid, um, encourage the provider to pause and reconsider that. Right, right. And so this is a supervised machine learning type analysis, right? So you have um, uh, you have a number of different features that comes directly for, from HF. Uh, so age, sex, race, ethnicity, uh, insurance type, uh, and counter characteristics such as duration, uh, time of the year and so on. Um, and uh, you have labeled data in this case. Um, I guess you had labeled data because you wouldn't know if opioid was Correct. prescribed or not, right? Okay. And so, so are there two questions here? One is to ask the question, given a new patient and those features, uh, you could assign a probability that that patient will be prescribed. Opioid, yeah, you right. could definitely approach the data from that um, predictive um, mindset. Right. 
And then can you, uh, so that data uh, doesn't really tell you if the patient is going to progress into some sort of an addiction issue. So how would you do that? In terms of predicting substance abuse? Um, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's additional diagnosis codes that document, uh, you know, whether a patient has a history of substance abuse disorder. And so it would be feasible to identify the patient with those diagnosis codes and then really look at their prior history of, uh, you know, what other conditions were they treated for, what medications were they given um, to develop that model. Um, one of the things in this case that helped with this study is that just in general, it's not advised to get, so there are other things that are much more of a gray area or whether an opioid is, is, is useful, but in this case, they're really not considered to be helpful for migraines compared to other options. And so that helped us have a fairly clear cut scenario to do this work. Yeah, uh, this, this won't be in the data. Uh, like you say, once you do something like this, you have 10 other things you could, you could start asking. So one question that, that went through my mind is, you know, how did they, how did they actually prescribe an opioid? Is it the patient asking for it? Or is yeah, the so uh, offering? That was another scoping thing with yeah. this project. It's focused on what happens within the emergency room. Um, so it's, yeah. it's really medication order and administration that happens in that emergency room setting. Whether or not the patient was requesting that, you know, if they came in and said, this has worked for me before, can I have it again? Um, we don't have visibility to yeah. that. Right, right. And so um, from a practical perspective, uh, you, so the, the analysis that you did finally ended up with a fairly high power. Right? Yeah, we That's think it was pretty compelling. Pretty compelling. So uh, as, as a new patient gets into an ED, if that probability is pretty high, um, and what I mean by that probability is if there is a history of substance abuse probability, uh, then the physician has to really think twice about the use of opioids. That, that may be the way to... to well, and in this case, even like without this, right? that history... Um, just because it's not considered to be an effective treatment, um, you know, encouraging them to pause in that decision making um, in this particular case is is effective as well. Right, right, right. Um, so, so if you're looking forward, um, you know, if you think about both of these issues, one is the sort of the data quality, data aggregation, data standardization problem in the variety of EHR systems out there that we talked about. And then uh, if we can get it to a level that we can look across a large data set, we can ask uh, more uh, specific questions, uh, treatment, opt optimum treatment type questions. Uh, so if you look forward five years, uh, Mark, um, where do you think we will be? Yeah, I think um, certainly the volume and variety of data that we're able to work with will be even greater. 
um, I think the opportunity to um, look holistically at how upstream data to capture affects downstream data analysis. Yeah. Um, example I frequently give is if we have a aggregate data set and we identify 10 patients whose weight in that data set shows up as being something that's completely infeasible. Um, let's say they're documented as being, you know, 50 year old person who weighs two pounds. Clearly an error. Yeah, right. What's important is, you know, creating the process to communicate that back upstream because that clinical decision support, many drug dosing things are evaluated using weight-based logic. And so that same logic that's, you know, evaluating the appropriateness of a dosage it's going to be running against an incorrect value and that may or may not always be visible. So I really am intrigued right. with that holistic opportunity. And then I, I remain just, you know, we have three or four additional papers coming out about other examples where provider behavior is not aligned with um, best practices. And um, I'm just excited about, you know, when you compare that to how long it takes to develop a new drug or how long it takes to, um, you know, do, uh, you know, really long-term research, this research has the opportunity for a pretty quick turnaround on an effective intervention. I really think that, you know, there's so much that right. providers have been taught and they know, but they're not always using that in practice. And so to help them um, identify those topics and just modify their behaviors is, uh, in the scheme of things, it's a very straightforward way to improve healthcare. Yeah. So for, you know, the entire spectrum from essentially getting the data, uh, right or cleaner, um, like, you know, um, mis, uh, mischaracterized or misinput data like weight or something like that to, uh, to getting to better diagnosis, better treatment modalities, uh, policies there. Um, and, and from a pharma perspective, uh, clearly there is information there for clinical trials. I was even thinking about drug interactions type information um I, I i haven't been involved in the pharma r d for a while but typically this type of data doesn't get back into r d processes that fast but i think there is a oh lot I, of I know there's there strong is. interest in pharma in working with this type of data there you know again looking at real world behavior this is an excellent resource for off-label medication use and uh, you know, where pharma's always interested in repurposing existing medications, the regulatory process is much um, more straightforward for that because the safety's already been evaluated. And so right. there is significant opportunity um, with this. There's also just exciting patterns of, you know, 
what are those unrecognized correlations that um, you know, that's where the machine learning opportunities are really exciting where, you know, we're not always asking the right question and the data can show us what we should be asking. Right. 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 Yeah, exactly. So if the machine can, you know, sort of um, red flag something or create a hypothesis uh, that humans have missed, uh, sometimes those types of things are extremely powerful. Um, because maybe that is, you know, sometimes it's counterintuitive, you know, um, and so we all look at data with an inherent bias. Uh, the beauty of machines is that, at least on the surface, yeah. <laughs> we can deploy machines. And when you have this bias. volume of data, techniques like machine and deep learning can recognize those subtle but um, consistent associations. Right, right. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Mark. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me. I enjoyed it very and, much. Thank uh, you again for the invitation. Thing. Thank you. Bye.